Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest, my guide to money and investing on the ASX and globally. To learn more about Rask Invest, follow the link in your podcast player. This podcast contains general information only, not personal financial advice. That means you shouldn't rely on the information to make an investment decision. Also, people appearing on the show may have a financial interest in the products or shares mentioned. Matt, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks very much. Very happy to be here. Very excited. Yeah, I, I love the positive energy. You and I have been talking about doing this for a long time. A long time, yeah. I've listened to a lot of the podcasts, obviously a big fan of yours. So yeah, very keen to, to, keen to join you. Yeah, you have so many insights that probably you and I or others in our circles talk about a lot, but yeah. many of those things will be new to mm. the people that are listening to this or watching. Um, as you know, what I usually do is understand more about you and your yeah. motivation for money and investing. And the best way to do that is to kind of track your journey to where you are now. So why don't we just go back to the beginning, mm-hmm. just trying to understand early influences towards money, mentors, that mm-hmm. type of thing, and uh, just set the scene for who you are today. Yeah, sure. So uh, originally from New Zealand, you might be able to tell from the accent, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I grew up in Auckland, in New Zealand, which is, I guess, kind of like a smaller Sydney in a lot of ways, um, but you know, it's a smaller country, so I guess it still has a bit of the 
the vibe of being a small country, so you can still, you know, half hour drive, you're in the a kind of country if you want to be or in the bush. Um, nice. Yeah, no, just a, a nice place to grow up and yeah. Yeah, great. And, you know, we, we often talk about uh, entrepreneurial streaks as young people that then go on, you know, you see this recurring theme throughout their life. They mm. might start something, fail something or start something, succeed, but then they come back again and again and again. Yeah. Did you have any of that when you were growing up? Yeah, I guess um, kind of growing up, uh, my parents had come from kind of poor backgrounds. Mum was um, raised by a single mum and dad was the oldest of 10 kids. Um, yeah. And so dad done really well. Dad got a trade and um, became a plumber and was kind of self-employed. So I guess I saw him um, operating his like independent business just himself. Um, and so that kind of a, a bit of a theme and mum um, was a nurse, but she also did some kind of painting and arts and crafts and go down the market and sell it. So I'd be kind of down there. Uh, from a young age helping them helping them with that uh, I guess it was stuff that I didn't really think about at the time but like in hindsight did kind of probably lead me to want to do something independent and and, and that kind of thing um, yeah and I guess because of that background we didn't have a, a heap of money growing up either but um, we I just think they, they manage money kind of well and mm-hmm. you know a lot of my toys went from garage sales so we're kind of in there like negotiating trying to find bargains and like <laughs> trying to think of uh, where that street comes from today and probably from those kind of things back yeah. then. Yeah. So would you say that the influences that you had were more on the saving side and less on the investing? Definitely less on the investing. Like I don't, I never knew investing was a thing when I was a smaller kid. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the first person in my family to own shares, I'd imagine. I right. never, never talked about that at all. But um, definitely like not, um, never went into consumer debt or anything, the family and you know, bought a house and paid it down. And um, yeah, so money, managing money, but more on the saving side. Um, and I think for me, it's probably, I don't know if it's like upbringing or just like genetic that I kind of save. Yeah. I, was, I think when I was six or seven, there's still some note that I'd been writing at home where I was saving, like my dad would let me have the change when he bought something at the store and I was saving it up. And I had like, I remember writing down, I had $8 and I thought I could have $12 by Christmas to like buy a box of chocolates yeah, for my parents or something. Um, so I think that's probably just like in me, I guess. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of later that I got into investing in my, in my teens and that. So, right. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's jump forward to that yeah. part of your life then. So that, where did that spark go off? Was it something at school perhaps or someone mm. you met along the way? It's kind of interesting. I guess I was like very interested in the world um, as a like su- surprisingly for a young person probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember even when I was ten, someone was asking me like friends were asking me what shares were, and I was like, I think it's like you share in the business. <laughs> I was kind of just interested, Great. but it was only and I, and I guess with kind of I was probably more like socially interested. I saw a, a lot of kind of injustice, as I'd said. My parents kind of came from poorer backgrounds and I I guess the kind of melting pot of where I was living kind of saw both sides and Mm. some people had a lot more than others and just kind of how you know someone raised in one family with you know loving supportive parents can have entirely different opportunity sets of what they know is possible so I guess I was kind of like a a bleeding heart (laughs) as Mm -hmm. a, a young guy and um but as I kind of became a teenager I started to um not see I originally was thinking I'd probably go into politics or something, but I started to not really see that as being that great of a solution. I guess um, kind of came to realize that I thought um, creating a business and what business can do to help people and then, you know, you can choose to um, give that money to charity or start something else with it was probably like a more direct path, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, I had 
I remember there was a teacher and I was like 13 and we had to, we could write an essay about anything we wanted. And mine was, um, should third world debt be canceled, which is kind of unusual. Most <laughs> yeah. people weren't writing about that. And the teacher after like, um, came over and he drew two circles on a bit of paper um, and the one in circle inside the other. And so the smaller circle was your circle of influence. And then the bigger circle is your circle of concern about the world. And he was basically like, look, you'll always, you have much bigger concerns and you'll have influence. Um, and me being maybe a rebellious teenager, I kind of like took that as a challenge. Like if you could increase your influence um, through maybe business and investing, then you could affect more. Um, and so you can kind of touch more of that area of concern. So I guess that was like the early points of starting to think differently about it. Um, and then, yeah, started reading some books when I was a teenager and whatever else, um, discovered this world of business and investing and mm. yeah, started getting a bit hooked then. That's, that's a very powerful lesson from your teacher to have that. That's, that's a special one. I haven't come across that in the series thus far. Yeah, it's still stuck with me yeah. <laughs> a long, yeah, long time later. So you obviously took an interest in investing, you started reading, mm. you, can, you were beginning to understand the power of, I imagine, things like compounding and, mm. and, and the impact you can, you can make or you can have with, uh, through business. Yeah. When did you buy your first share and when did you start to put money at risk? Yeah. So I, I was reading the business section of the paper from like 10 or 12 or something, um, but I didn't really have, it was probably a few years after I bought my first year, I really discovered value investing. So first year was pretty much as soon as I turned 18, that was when I was allowed to open a brokerage account. So I've been following for a few years and uh, thought I knew everything. And <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. And, you know, some stuff when you're watching and you're like, yeah, I really like the, the warehouse was a big thing in New Zealand. And I thought that was going to do well and it did do well. And, you know, just think, yeah, once I can do this. Um, and so, yeah, first year when I was 18, walked down with a thousand dollars I'd saved and opened that account. I'd also been, I had a paper round from like 10 or so. So I had, uh, I guess, decent for that age amount that I'd saved up. Um, so yeah, I was starting to look to put it to work and, um, I think that first experience I was probably unlucky and lucky. So I actually did well, but I think that was probably quite unlucky because mm. I didn't have any good process. Um, so the first shares I bought were in a vending technology company. So, um, vending machines like remote operated vending machines where they'd be updated via, mm -hmm. they ran on a mobile network. This was obviously a while ago, but that was kind of cool and yep. new. And I just thought it was like a great business. I think I'd read some um, business books around like how vending machines, like you go and put them out and you just come back and collect the money. And I like that idea. Mm -hmm. um, and it went up and that was great. Um, I ended up selling for a, a decent little profit. Um, probably later on went into bankruptcy, I think, that business. So <laughs> right. like a couple of years later. So lucky. Um, yeah, and then I had another bit of success and... Um, yeah, ultimately learned a few lessons because I got um, definitely thought I was a lot better than my process was at that time. Mm. Mm. This is something called the uh, humility curve, and you're probably familiar mm -hmm. with it. Yeah. Kind of, your introduction to investing tends to become, you know, you get these endorphins and you mm. feel really good about it. Complexity peaks and then you come back to reality. Yeah. Some people have a, a good first experience, some people jump wipe that curve initially. Yeah. But let's discuss now the transition from, I guess, high school and then going on to study business. Yeah at uh, is it the University of Auckland? Yeah, right? University yeah. of Auckland. International yeah. business, was that it? Yeah, international yeah. business, yeah. yeah. And why was that appealing to you? Yeah, so I guess my, I was kind of just interested in the world, as I'd said, and that was where I kind of saw myself going. So um, I didn't, we had some kind of negative experiences with um, financial professionals and my teens as well. So 
um, someone who basically ripped off um, <laughs> our family. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I never, I didn't see myself going into finance traditionally. I just didn't, I didn't know anyone in that world and had kind of negative experiences with it that still get me a bit angry, <laughs> as you can probably tell today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't, I didn't see that as a path, even though I was super interested in finance investing. I thought I'd become a business person and um, had a couple of little businesses that I started. And so I thought international business would be a good path. I was really interested in the world, as I said, and I wanted to work overseas as well. So um, dad and mum had actually, um, before I was born, went to Vanuatu, which is a very remote island in the Pacific. And um, dad like built a hospital there for a few wow. years and lived there. It was kind of that big adventure. So I'd always wanted to have a bit of an overseas adventure as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was kind of a draw card of studying that. And international business is an interesting discipline within um, business because it's more about strategy and like it was a lot around what would we would call moats today. Mm-hmm. It was around competitive advantage, which actually was pretty useful. So mm-hmm. I do do rate that. Yeah. Okay. And then so you 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 told me something funny, which I didn't know about you in the lead up to this. You did your honours, yeah, and you wanted to do one topic, yeah. but uh, someone convinced you to do something else. Or? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was uh, early two thousand eight when I was doing my honours year, um, and you have to choose your dissertation topic, which is like a mini kind of thesis, maybe fifteen thousand words research to prepare you if you want to do a master's. And uh, I wanted to do it on gr- the Great Depression and how companies main, you know, managed through the Great Depression and strategy. And I was basically rejected. Like I was told the Great Depression was too irrelevant. Um, you know, that's not relevant to today at all. And, you know, we've solved a lot of things these days. That, that stuff won't happen. And that was like the start of 2008 when I was having that conversation. And so instead I had to do something more recent and modern, which was um, the Asian financial crisis and turnaround mm-hmm. strategy. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of funny. You know, if I'd, if I'd left it six months later, that would have been the perfect timing because I would have been finishing just at the GFC and suddenly everyone would be super interested in this, you know, very relevant thing. For sure. Because uh, obviously those times can return again. So yeah. the, I guess the, the tough thing for you graduating at that time would have been, I imagine it would be quite difficult to find jobs. Yeah. So what was the first job out of uni? Yeah, so I worked my way through uni, probably 20, 30 hours a week. Um, it started as a call center and then I was kind of the, the weekend manager of the call center and then <laughs> towards the end managing a small team of, of guys there in an internet call center. So um, immediately after you're completely right, New Zealand actually had a recession. I know Australia doesn't, <laughs> hasn't had one in 30 years. Mm-hmm. New Zealand's had a couple. And um, yeah, it was tough. Like, I, So I was able to keep that job and then expand it to full time while I was looking for other um, kind of positions. I remember we put out an ad for a job for just an entry-level call center position, and we had like 450 applicants in wow. a day. Yeah, this is in like March 2009. Um, so it was definitely tough. And like I'd looked at a couple of grad programs and hotels and other stuff, um, and they just disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, and this uh, grad program that I ended up joining was something that I'd had as a goal for about a year, and thankfully it still existed. They just shrunk it a lot, so there's a lot less applicants than there used to be, um, or a lot less positions than there used to be. But mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was it was a it was a interesting time, kind of a baptism of fire, I guess, for into sure. the working world. Yeah. yeah, and so the job that you got at this graduate program is it mm. Maersk? Is that correct? Yeah, Maersk, Maersk Container yeah. Shipping Line. I, I I used to say Maersk yeah, okay. <laughs> as well when I was talking to people. Um, so. Yeah, I guess I'd just seen it like I was interested in international business. And this was a company that was in, had offices in 180 countries, 16,000 people, 30 billion revenue or something, and just touched every part of the international world. Um, so, and they had a really good grad program, um, which they used to take a few hundred people. And globally, when I, by the 
for the recession, it was like 40. Mm-hmm. Um, so it shrunk right. a lot. Um, but it was, it was a good opportunity for me to kind of have um, different experiences in business. You rotate through, um, you know, sales, um, kind of finance functions, etc. I kind of guess I found my niche in finance mm-hmm. um, in that world. And, and yeah, so that I joined them. And another bigger draw card is there was an opportunity to work as an expat for a couple of years after that. Um, so I definitely wanted to work overseas. And yeah, so that's... that's so where did you end up? So I ended up in Copenhagen, Denmark, mm-hmm. uh, which is the headquarters of this big global giant shipping company. Um, yeah, and it was a, a very interesting country, really great place. I was, I was kind of keen for like somewhere more wild, like there's kind of Kenya or something. A lot of people go to Angola and all sorts, but I guess the advantage with going to Copenhagen is you get to be in this huge, you know, center and see what, you know, 2000 person office is like mm. with this big global company. And not to mention if you were looking to travel, it's a bit easier from Copenhagen than Yeah, my, else, right? my, um, my partner at the time is now my wife, Dina, was certainly keen on Copenhagen, I think. It's yeah. a quite a very nice country as well, a little kind of socialist utopia. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. And so did you get out and travel a bit? Yeah, we did. Um, I started studying the CFA program while I was there, so not as much as my wife would have liked, but yeah, you <clears throat> attach a half hour flight to, you know, a lot of other countries in Europe and 50 bucks and you're in Paris or something. So mm. yeah, we got to see a bit around there. So yeah, it, was, it was pretty cool. So you, you mentioned the CFA program. Mm. People in the industry are familiar with it. People trying to get into the industry are familiar with the program. I think we've spoken on this series before about how difficult it is to complete yeah. uh, the full three levels of the program. My understanding is that you completed all three in a row. Yeah. And the, effectively the shortest possible time anyone could do it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's credit to you. Fantastic. <laughs> Why did you want to study the CFA? Was there, you know, there was an end goal, I imagine, moving into industry? Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I didn't realize how hard it was when I started either. I thought it was just a multiple choice. <laughs> I gave myself like six weeks for level one, so part of what pushed it up. Um, but I guess I, so I'd started investing when I was 18. I had, you know, actually a fair bit of success bought into even what are now mining, mining companies, mining exploration companies. Some of them did well, eventually one did terribly, mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, um, licking my wounds for a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was only, sort of mid 20s early 20s where I discovered value investing and Warren Buffett um, like a lot of people reading a book about you know Buffett Mm -hmm. Um, and so it just started kind of taking over my life a little bit there was a couple of things in the grad program they have like trying to find your true like meaning and purpose and it was kind of notorious for some people ending up leaving the leaving the company a few years later because it actually was pretty good Um, but it did lead me to like kind of reevaluate what I was doing um, and so I started like an investment partnership with a friend in New Zealand, just putting in a few hundred dollars a week each. And we were having a meeting each week and discussing things, trying to be as formal as possible. Um, and then when I moved to Copenhagen for about nine months, um, my partner couldn't come because she had to get a green card to come, being a Kiwi. And um, so I was just there by myself and it really took over my life then. Yep. <laughs> so every, especially in a Copenhagen winter where the sun sets at 3.30 in the afternoon. Um, so yeah, that really just started, just really um, got obsessed with it. I started a Copenhagen investment club and um, what have you. So I started to think like preparing for transitioning into kind of equity research. Um, and then actually just when I started the program, um, my father passed away and just kind of led me to it kind of prompts like a reevaluation of 
what really drives you and I just kind of decided to make the leap. Um, I was definitely on like a very clear track with Maersk where the path would be becoming a finance manager and then a CFO of a country and if you keep going maybe regional you know it's quite a clear path but it wasn't although it was interesting and there was great people it wasn't what really like motivated me to spend my nights and weekends on and something else was and so yeah that's when I decided to start studying the CFA as part of that um, and yeah just prep for um, moving into a career, I guess, in, mm. in equity research. So you were in Copenhagen for a few years and then yeah. decided to come back to Australia rather than New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, at this time, I believe you joined the Motley Fool. Yeah. Why Australia at that time? So, yeah, I was living in Copenhagen. Copenhagen's amazing. It's very <laughs> fun. My wife didn't want to leave, um, but she doesn't want to leave Australia now either, so that's good. Um, but, yeah, so I started... Well, I was there um, blogging about finance and investing and then started writing for The Motley Fool as a freelancer mm-hmm. um, and just while also working full time. So it was like a couple of articles a week, mm-hmm. um, nothing like what you guys can put out or ask. Um, but yeah, so writing there and then just got an email from uh, Joe, Joe Mega, who was setting up a service called Motley Fool Pro and looking for a research analyst. And I applied and had three or four Skype interviews, I think it was. And yeah, I was just kind of coming towards the end of my three-year contract um, there and yeah, decided to make the leap and move down and so join that service as a research analyst um, yeah, from the inception. So, Great. And you come yeah. back here to Sydney. Mm-hmm. How did you find the adjustment? I was, the, f- the first thing I noticed was that um, I could hear everyone's conversations, like I could understand what people are saying around <laughs> me. And it just felt like, it was just kind of like, I don't know, it felt like a weird power that got switched on because although I was learning some Danish I couldn't understand most of what was happening so that was probably the first kind of re-acculturation of all this all this noise yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah otherwise Sydney's a pretty amazing um, place you know you've got um, yeah you can't have a really good lifestyle mm-hmm. here um, and so we're you know based out by one of the beaches and it's very peaceful mm-hmm. and all the time I was working on pro was based out there and will continue to be trying to be as much out there away from the noise of the city as possible so yeah, yeah great fan. So during that time, uh, working on the Motley Fool Pro, I imagine you would have honed some skills and you have some big picture takeaways. Mm -hmm. And looking from the outside, one of them for me is your focus on technology. Mm. Was that honed there? Is that, do you think, where you got that? Or were you already on that path? I guess I was on the path. I think what we really looked for was definitely like enterprise software was, was a big part of what we did. But it was also any business that was very scalable. And mm-hmm. so enterprise software just happens to have all of the attributes that we, we like. Um, but other businesses like um, like Infant Formula, A2 Milk as well, that I can touch on later. But um, yeah, so I think that, that I guess I was already interested in technology. And that's part of what drew me away from shipping, for instance. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not that type of job. You know, it hasn't changed much. And I guess 50 years ago it changed. It probably won't change for a long time. Um, so yeah, interested in change in technology, but then just trying to apply it and look at the economics of the business and anything that can be super scalable software has, you know, zero marginal costs can be infinitely replicated. Um, it's very sticky. It's a lot of attractive qualities. So yeah, it was, that's where I definitely got a lot of the practice. I guess my background was value. So I came from Buffett and Mm -hmm. Graham and Dodd value. Um, but I was already part of why I wanted to join the Motley Fool together was, David Gardner's style of growth investing and I thought if I go there and learn for a few years it's kind of a funny named company and all that stuff <laughs> but I thought the investing was really high quality and I was a client of their Australian service so um, yeah that's what I wanted to learn about and it worked out pretty well I think yeah. I, I got to understand and meet David Gardner a couple of times so yeah wonderful um, 
see, the reason why I talk about technology is because I know that you have not only, I wouldn't say a passing interest, you're very passionate about themes like artificial intelligence, yeah. machine learning, those types of things. Um, and you were at the Motley Fool and specifically worked at Motley Fool Pro for quite a few years and it did very well. Mm-hmm. What prompted the shift away from Motley Fool? Yeah, I guess, um, so I left just coming up to a year ago and it was just initially thinking that I just wanted to invest my own money. So invest family's money and my own money. And I don't know, I guess when it's similar to that draw of being independent, I guess whenever you're in a very large kind of global organization, there's certain ways that they do things and you think that they could be done in a different way. So that's part of it. Um, yeah, and just, and just transitioning to um, kind of managing a smaller fund and being able to control that was part of what drew me in. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was originally thinking to just manage kind of something fairly small and had a few people reach out who are interested in what I'm doing. And so mm. that's kind of how we, how we led to getting set up now. Yeah, I read on your blog, um, mattjoss.com, mm-hmm. that you got many messages, people saying how, how you impacted their lives. Mm. And this kind of comes back to the, the impact that you were trying to have as a, as a young person or you were seeking to have in the future. And then people being able to give back to charity. So those types of wonderful things. As an investor, when you sit, or an investment advisor, you sit back on the side of the table, you're typing away on a computer, you don't really feel that. Mm. But I imagine you got a lot of a sense of pride. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, it's, 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 it's credit to you for, for helping people do that. But is that, I, I get the sense that that's kind of what's now brought you back around to it investing is. bigger picture. Yeah, it is. I, I kind of feel like... Um, you have a kind of a duty to do the best that you can to help the world and to do, and that doesn't mean necessarily going and giving it all to charity and whatever else, but doing your, if there's something that you think that you are competent at and doing it well, um, that plays this part in this, you know, amazing, amazing kind of capitalist um, democratic exercise that we have. So, you know, my dad is a plumber, played his part and did a very good job for people and was very trusted professional. Um, There's thousands of people out there every day doing it. I think that my, um, if I could, I could just go and manage my own money and wouldn't um, really impact anyone else, and that would be fine. But yeah, we got some of the messages we got. We had a, a, a an investor who had bought two houses for some uh, struggling Mexican families and was looking to buy a third with the money that he had made with Pro. And yeah, we just we just got a lot of people who had, how to change their lives and they're helping other people. And I think that's something. Um, obviously, money's just a tool, but it allows you to do that and. Yeah, I guess I think you have kind of a duty to do the best that you can to to play your part in the world, and so that's kind of what prompted me to not just um, I don't know stay in the lounge and manage my own money, and, <laughs> and it's fine. Like I know people who do that, but I often talk to them in a couple of years, and it does get a bit kind of I don't know samey. It's not you're not interacting, you're not growing either. The other part is just like to kind of push myself and see how much better I can get, which I think if you try and isolate too much, you probably lose that. So yeah, yeah those things kind of prompted me to, to go and create Maven. Yeah. yeah, wonderful. So you mentioned the name Maven. Yeah. So what's the elevator pitch for Maven? And then I, I'm always keen to know how you chose the name. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yeah, I'll start with the name. So Maven is an trusted expert that uh, identifies a trend um, before others. So from Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point, he kind of popularized um, that view of it. And it's, yeah, someone who's, who's trusted and helps others um, understand the world. So they identify some trend in that book, The Tipping Point. And it kind of relates a lot to what I like to look for with inflection points. So some change, whether it's new technology or company. And uh, that's sort of the primary reason is what I see our goal being. So 
um, working very hard to do that for our clients and then helping them understand it and then maybe helping the market understand and kind of like a, a bigger purpose down the line is um, very passionate about education and mm. equality of opportunity in that regard. So um, something that I'd, you know, teaching and helping people is something that's really important to me. Um, so yeah, I've had a, had a couple of people, younger people reach out around like, can I mentor them? And my first question normally is um, just asking what they want to do with money once they become wealthy, because if they are young and I'm very invest in, and do you know an adequate job, they will become wealthy. It's like, what, what will you do then? And I think a lot of people kind of forget that part. They don't think about why they're investing. Um, so just trying to bring that to the fore, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, wonderful. One of the, oh, I wouldn't say one of it, but one of the things I really like about the people that I interview on the show is that typically they've had vast experience, whether it's in investing or outside of it. Um, they come to it and they, from day one, they can design their own investment philosophy or they can set the investment philosophy for their firm, their process, etc. You've identified four key pillars that you focus on at Maven and mm. I'm hoping we can step through them one by one. Why don't we start with the first one, which is this idea of catching monsters. Yeah. I know there's a blog post which we'll link to, but if you can just first define what a monster is and why that yeah. is your focus. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, so explain Maven. So we're a, a small cap focused fund. We're trying to identify these businesses that are still early in their uh, mm-hmm. growth period in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and so the name Monsters is partly kind of a catchy name. Like it, um, I, I think it like tries to stand out from just saying, you know, buying something that's good and growing because it's, it is trying to capture something a little different. Um, going back to, you know, a few years back, I kind of did a study of um, what were some great businesses. So David Gardner in the US has an amazing track record of, I think his Amazon investment is up 400 fold. So a 400 bagger. Um, that's probably actually outdated. It's probably like a thousand fold. Now. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to learn about that style, like not just uh, buying something that was okay at a great price at a, you know, big discount, um, learn about those types of businesses. So I read books like 100 to 1 in the stock market, um, 100 baggers, um, the gorilla game that mm-hmm. I know that you're a big fan of as well. And so I was trying to identify what are the traits that make these few companies generate these huge returns. Uh, there's a stat that I really love, which is that 4% of companies are responsible for all of the share market's returns over a long period. So over their lives, only 4% generate all of the return and the rest mm. Basically, most of the rest lose money. Um, And so we're trying to identify those few. um, And when I say monsters, I guess a subset of those that aren't doing it, aren't just lucky. So we're not just looking for mining speculators. We're not looking for a biotech breakthrough that couldn't be foreseen. We're looking for businesses that can kind of compound and reinvest uh, and achieve those kind of very large returns if everything goes well. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Uh, There's so many factors that you focus on. Yeah. in terms of, I guess, some of the common traits you mentioned there, one thing that come, comes out of the Gorilla Game, for example, is something mm. about the architecture or understanding the, the company that kind of sets the standards for an industry. Yeah. Are there any qualitative tells rather than quantitative tells for you or signals that kind of precede what you see in the financial statements a few years later? Mm. Um, and we'll get through some inflection points in a moment, but is there yeah. anything over this time that you've put together and I think that's a signal? Yeah, so I think um, by the time that it's showing up in the financials, it's already tends to be quite well recognized. So mm-hmm. the first part is just understanding the business itself and what it does, which sounds obvious, but it's, it's amazing to me how 
hard it is to understand mm. what a business really does um, and how few investors really understand what a business does. So, I mean, you know, a customer makes an order. What happens next? Who do they talk to? How long does it, that take? How long does that process take? Who's involved? What are the costs involved? Um, and so that brings you through to unit economics of that product. Uh, that's something that we try to, excuse me, focus on a lot. Um, and so that isn't showing up in the financials yet. Uh, I guess it is kind of numerical in a way, but it's much more qualitative and who has the levers in that supply chain. Mm-hmm. Big point that we focus on uh, is, is competitive advantage, but that uh, it's not just high return on capital now. It's like who can have the ability to capture that via a lot of other things like sticky customers, um, maybe suppliers that aren't able to you know, hold you to ransom. Um, yeah, just understanding who has the power in the industry. Uh, we'd like to talk to a lot of management teams before we buy and talk to their competitors and suppliers, etc. And you just, yeah, you just get a feel for who has the control and power in the industry. And as you said, gorillas are a great example. Um, they're companies that can actually even set the standard. Unfortunately, they've become a bit rarer because people cottoned on to <laughs> Microsoft controlling the standards, but they are still out there. And other companies can do it in a less direct way, like Coca-Cola sets the standards for distribution because if they want their fridge to be a certain size, they can kind of demand it or whatever else. So they still have their own ways of doing it, but uh, not as explicitly. Mm. What well, You touched on management there, and the second key pillar for you is deep research. Mm-hmm. And I think when you hear a pitch from a management team, it's very hard to decipher in advance, effectively, yeah, you've got this strategy, you've got this plan, but how do I know that's going to lead to those unit economics? Yeah. So I, you've told me before, and I think you've written about this, is that you always meet with management, or you mm. always at least try to yeah. get out there and contact them. You do channel checks, you get boots on the ground. Is there any, again, I'm gonna ask for very simple um, signals or, or tells. When mm. you're speaking to management, is there something that you always ask them kind of like as a, a roundabout way to say, is this person genuinely looking for those unit economics like I am? Yeah, there's a few. We try to ask our questions. Uh, we try to invert the question often. So we try to, management will often follow what your lead is if they're trying to just please you and say anything. So right. if we want to ask something, we will try to ask the opposite. So like if we think it'd be a terrible idea for them to expand internationally because they're just trying to grow their you know, enterprise, they try to grow their number of staff reporting to them rather than create value, we might ask them, oh, like, you know, shouldn't you expand and do this other thing and what would that do? And then you can see if they say the opposite, like, no, that would be a terrible idea. So it's really about understanding the business. One question I like to ask at the start, which is very simple, is just um, what do you see as your role of CEO being? Like, what is your job? And it's surprising how few have really thought about that in a clear way. And uh, I remember one time we had a company say the job was to, kind of promote the business or promote the stock or something. Oh, right. <laughs> I was just like, wow, this is going to be, how, how early can I make this call finish? Um, yeah, so that's, that's one. I think just trying to dig into it in different ways, asking them about, yeah, just, just try to find things we can catch them out on as well. Like we, we, do a, we try to research a lot. I don't like to meet with a company without doing anything. It's kind of a worthless meeting. Mm. I try to spend a couple of weeks on the company ideally before we have studied a lot and it's like the last few questions, maybe we want to understand the business, but also we can then sanity check what they're saying live and yeah, kind of maybe hopefully lead them away and see if they come back to what we think would be good. Yeah. Right. I guess a really good way to think about this from in simplistic terms is how many rocks do you think you turn over before you get 
to the yes answer. So Steve Johnson was on the podcast uh, previously and he said he starts it now and works to yes. Mm-hmm. And I think a really good way to kind of think about that is how many things do you say no to before you mm-hmm. say yes? How many of these meetings would you have, say, every month, every year? Yeah, I guess technically we say to no to everything because we literally go through A to Z the entire stock market. So mm-hmm. um, just finished up a round of that. So it's about... 2,200 companies in Australia and another 150-odd in New Zealand. So just looking at each one, one by one, mm. takes, a, takes a while. Mm. Um, and identifying, is it kind of having that potential to be something we want to talk to? So this time around, we found around 6% of companies are in our like hunting ground, another maybe right. 8% are kind of what we'd watch as a potential. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of terrible companies. <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs> Um, so say no to a heap there. So that already cuts us down to like 90% are gone before we're even meeting with management. And then meeting with management, I'd probably be, probably be another like 90-10 thing again, yep. maybe. Um, maybe more, I guess. Um, there's also other meetings which might lead tangentially. So we might meet with a um, competitor to understand this company. Actually, we like that competitor or we understand there's a supplier. So we go there. Um, but yeah, I guess if we do that a couple of times, it gets us to the top kind of 1% in the market. And that's what we're trying to find basically is the top 1% of companies as a rough rule of thumb. So mm. yeah, getting down to that 15 to 30 in the, in the market and yeah. Right. Okay. And that enables you to do efficiently manage your time and effort, right? Yeah. So what you mentioned the idea of this hunting ground. Yeah. You said maybe it's 6%, maybe it's less. Mm. Why? I, I feel like I've said, I've heard you say before Throughout the value chain of a business, so mm-hmm. you look at the suppliers, distributors, everything, typically it tends to be software. And I, I'm calling this out, but as you gave before yeah. example with A2, it's not in that realm. But why is it the software is within that hunting ground? Yeah. So there's a great um, study called Measuring the Moat, which I talk about a fair bit, but it's, it looks at the airline industry and um, kind of charts who, where's the capital being invested in that industry and who made sort of surplus returns, excess returns on capital. Mm-hmm. And you see almost all the capital went into the airlines, about half, and then the airports, and they generated negative returns, so destroyed shareholder value. I know we've talked about this a bit, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But then you have these few businesses that capture that value. And software, computer reservation systems in the airline industry is one example. And I think part of the reason software does is it has those economics of incredible scalability coupled with uh, stickiness. So those are two two interesting things, Mm -hmm. those two together. It's a production side advantage and a demand side advantage. So the production side is it costs nothing once you've built software to replicate it again. Uh, Sometimes for different customers, you might make it slightly different, but if you've uh, particularly if you're doing cloud software, it's literally one platform. Um, and so that, that side's really attractive. And then you couple that with demand. So very sticky. Once people have trained and learned how to use a product, they don't want to go and use something else because they have to retrain the whole organization. Uh, the businesses tend to be kind of price insensitive to incremental increases each year if the company chooses to do that or ideally can add on other related products. It's very easy to spin up another related product that they might need. Um, they already have that distribution relationship in that case. And that marriage of being able to produce, I mean, just imagine if a car company could produce 10 million cars at zero cost. You know, like it's hard to get our brains wrapped around around how different that Mm. is because it's not like the way the physical world works. And I still think we're not really capturing it enough. Um, There's a lot more focus now on intangible assets. And that's, that's basically what we're getting at is these businesses... Uh, don't people don't recognize how much how much how valuable those intangible assets that IP is um, because yeah you can combine sticky customer with being able to replicate and scale at no cost and that 
together can create this kind of flywheel effect as you you're able to grow demand and best that and you know even more scale and, and just keep going so mm. yeah that's why they tend to i think that's a big part of it um mm. they have a moat they have a barrier that stops other people competing ultimately anyone who earns surplus returns has some barrier that stops other people competing with them and then they can combine that with really good supply side stuff so mm. Mm. Uh, that's just a, you just neatly packaged that for us there there are I can't think of any other industry that has similar characteristics. Do you, I mean, we talked about software a lot. Is there anything, is there any other way, I guess, people from the outside thinking, I don't know much about software, I don't know much about technology. Mm. Do you see this in other industries? I guess media is another big one. Um, okay. So again, though, it's just tracking, it's an intangible asset. So if you create... Um, like Disney. Disney would be a business that is able mm-hmm. to do a lot of that. Obviously, they have some theme parks, but the rest of it is, it's not software, but it's an intangible asset that can be infinitely scaled. Uh, A2 Milk as well is, you know, they weren't doing the hard work. It was kind of a brand. So Brands is another example. Coca-Cola um, owns the brand Coca-Cola. They don't typically do the bottling in almost any country. So someone else does all that hard work, and then they just license, you know, a recipe for the syrup and produce the syrup. Um, so that's a way of turning what could be a very heavy, hard process that doesn't scale into something with incredibly attractive economics. Uh, so it's definitely an area we focus on. We're trying to, obviously people have kind of woken up in Australia to what software is, mm. as a, um, software as a service particularly. I still think there's pockets um, where it's quite attractive, but it's definitely something I'm thinking about. What other businesses can those economics apply to? Uh, and then, yeah, trying to identify them before other people have caught on. But anything that can be scaled very quickly and at low cost is mm. interesting. So one thing we talk about, you know, we talk about effectively quality, people trying to identify modes. I think, you know, we go back to Charlie Munger trying to instill upon Warren Buffett the, the idea of intangible assets and, and finding these wonderful businesses. But the part where people, I think, get it wrong is when it comes to the valuation. Mm. And they think that wags the dog effectively, mm. but that's kind of like the end point, but mm. it, it's, it's so crucial in the process. So how do you, first of all, I guess, how do you value these opportunities? Yeah. And what, what unique insights do you bring to modeling and understanding these businesses? Yeah, so I think the first part is you're right. I think a lot of people, particularly value guys, they start with evaluation and because that's what they're used to. They're used to look screening for companies by looking what's trading at like eight times earnings or something. And the way that I look at companies, I don't look at all of their valuation, all that stuff I said around the 6% um, is primarily understanding what the business does. So I'm interested in the business model and trying to understand that. And then we dig into that deeper. So that obviously that um, first screen, we can only do so much. And then when we're spending research time, it's just understand the business on very different, many different angles. You mentioned before trying to find alternative means of measuring the business. So we're trying to find that. Um, sometimes there's some publicly available information we can find through just hard work or through being clever about different things for different businesses um, to track how they're performing in between when they're reporting financials. So if we can find that, that's ideal. And then all of it just comes together in the valuation. So I do do a discounted cash flow forecast, but I don't think people should get too hung up on the discounted part. Like it's more, do you understand the business so that you could kind of write down what its financials would be and how it would work, you know, respond to growth. Mm. Um, and then we're just trying to model it out. And one other thing that I think we focus on is we're not afraid of forecasting. So forecasting has a very negative reputation because mm. there's so many bad forecasts and pundits that just you know throw out numbers. Uh, but I think forecasting and prediction is actually 
it's kind of like the root of what is to be human. Like we're really prediction machines. Everything we do, um, when I'm talking to you, I'm saying something, predicting how you, I think you will understand it. Everything we do, if you think about intelligence, comes back to that. Um, there's a really good book, Super Forecasting, that I love, which tracked, um, it came from the original author, Philip Tetlock, who um, wrote a study in the 90s, Expert Political Judgment, which found most forecasters weren't any better than like a, a dart-throwing monkey. Um, <laughs> But he also found that a few were very good. So most are terrible. But when he did a more updated study with intelligence analysts in the CIA, about 2% were actually much better than any other model they had. So this is predicting things like who would be the next president of this area or what would economic growth be. Um, and he found that there were certain traits that those people had. Uh, and so we try and model those traits, I guess. Mm. We think that's kind of like a foundational book that... Um, Trav has read already, a research analyst, which is good, but anyone joining Maven will be reading that book along with a couple of others. Um, and it's, it's just viewing the world, coming with like a base rate approach. So when you um, consider something, think about what does the data look like for the whole set of opportunities. So if you think this company is going to grow 40% next year and will sustain that, what percent of companies actually do that? Are we talking half a percent of companies that can achieve that? And then maybe it is, and maybe it is one of those, but then it just sets the, the, the standards. There's yeah, a lot of other things I, I won't get into more now, I'll probably speak for half an hour, but it's um, yeah, taking a, an independent view and being willing to kind of improve your forecasting process and track it and um, yeah, use a few techniques that they talk about in that book to become better. And I don't think you should shy away from it too much if you're investing in growing businesses, because if you're not forecasting them, I don't know what you're doing really. Like you, you're kind of at the whim of the market to price them correctly. It's very hard to have an independent valuation without some idea of what you think they'll do. Um, and recognizing that there's sensitivities and ranges of outcomes there. Mm. How about your next pillar, which is ownership mindset? Mm -hmm. And I imagine this takes kind of two different you take two different views on this. Yeah. So maybe I'll just let you explain why that's a pillar, one of yeah. the four key pillars, if you like. Yeah, so ownership mindset is um, it's really core to what we do, I guess. I think it's aligning your interests with um, the company and with the company's clients as well. And just the more that there's that alignment, it kind of allows everything to work efficiently and effectively. We step back to like, why are we investing at all? And I know I've talked to you about this before, but I think all investing is um, sacrificing something today for the future. And you're trying to align your portfolio with this incredible engine of human progress. that's lifted, you know, billions of people out of poverty over the last couple hundred years. And so we're trying to, when we invest, we're trying to align ourselves with that with businesses. We want management teams that are aligned with that. So they're trying to create value for their customers, which ultimately we rewarded for their shareholders. So yeah, ownership mindset comes down to us personally having a majority of our personal wealth invested in the fund, both myself and Trav and anyone else who works for us. Um, it means that our clients aren't trying to buy stock prices. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to underestimate how much stock price thinking infects even very smart people because it's just all you're bombarded with. We're not doing that. We're buying businesses. And so uh, the ownership mindset also means... Um, thinking about it like you own 20 to 30 businesses. And I think if you thought about it that way, you'd be a lot less concerned with the swings of market sentiment. Uh, and it, yeah, and it means our management teams, we love founder led businesses because they tend to have that. Or sometimes a manager can act like an owner if they weren't the original founder, but they kind of act like it now. And hopefully they're investing their personal money, have a lot of their wealth at stake, uh, just aligns interests. Um, a lot of the problems with the finance industry that I touched on before, 
that I think lead it astray is when people don't have that. It can lead to really terrible outcomes. Um, and I think people in the industry don't appreciate how the, that affects real people's lives. So, mm. Yeah. Mm. so one thing you, you mentioned there is that you prefer founders, yeah. um, but you can have, in effect, owner-operators. Yeah. So people that buy into the business and have mm. skin in the game. When you, when you think about CEOs or managers like that, are you primarily thinking skin in the game long-term interests or is it do you think there's something in the way they speak the way they act and the way they make decisions as well yeah it's definitely both like if they were just speaking and acting and they didn't own anything i'd probably be a bit suspect um but if they just own something and weren't you know i think people can get it through different means and options a few good examples like daryl lobotomy at batcore is um, not the original founder but he came and he the way that he talks about that, but you can just kind of, if you meet with him, you can just kind of see it in his face, like how proud he is. And he um, kind of runs it similar to like a family business in a way, like a very big one where the, all the staff are kind of like, like part of the family in a way. And that, that sense of ownership, that if something goes wrong, people that think that way, they're not just going to go home at five o'clock and, you know, clock out. If there's a crisis hit, they're not going to just resign like a lot of board members at these troubled companies do. They're going to stick there because they their identity is part of their mm. business. Um, yeah, and I think that that's it's hard to underestimate that. Um, obviously, with Maven, we're owned by our staff and myself, um, so I think that that alignment just means, yeah, you're you're focused whenever there's trouble and whenever there's something else. Your your identity is tied up in it, so you want it to succeed. Mm. The last one that you mentioned kind of overlaps a bit. Uh, the last key pillar is focusing on the client or you, mm-hmm. as you would say. So the client that invests with you. I think this is a really important point too because oftentimes what fund managers signal to their clients isn't necessarily the best approach for the long term. Yeah. So how are you trying to solve that communication error? Yeah. I guess. It's a great point. I think a lot of the problems in the industry come from that misalignment. Um, Kind of people attract hot money. Um, You have some good period of returns. Uh, and people flow in and then they flow out. And I talked to um, someone in the industry who said, like, we could review your fund, but then we decide whether, you know, smalls, small cap companies in that quarter will be where we want to be and then we might move in and then, you know, might evaluate and move right. out. And it's like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> because it just means that that fund manager then is thinking uh, in quarterly terms. And this is a big problem in the industry. No one's thinking long term. Uh, so that's that's a big part of it. So... I think a lot of our clients will have been business owners before or they've been senior executives or professionals and they kind of understand that they're buying businesses, they're not buying share prices. And we just, how do we do that? I think it's just trying to emphasize it, you know, up front on the door. That's why I put it in one of the four pillars. Obviously, that's more around how we run the firm than just the investing process itself. But that allows us to buy companies that we think will be better in five or 10 years um, I think if you, rather than just next month, if you ask most fund managers, you know, I could name you the best performing stock over the next 10 years, but at some point in that time, it'll fall 80%. They would be looking at it as a potential short. You know, they'd be saying, okay, when, when's it going to fall 80% instead of this is going to be the best over the next 10 years. So yeah, that's what we're trying to align with. Yeah, great. Um, I'd like to shift gears now and, and kind of drop into some, drop into some passion points for you and some really deep domain knowledge that you have and tap into that. And so the first one is inflection points. Mm-hmm. You've written about this again. I'll put a link in the show notes, but 
let's take listeners through the basics here. What is an inflection point? And I think you've spelled out some of the key examples. So maybe you could just provide some of them too. Yeah, absolutely. It was one that kind of came to me from um, experience noticing these things. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't, um, it was only later, you know, looking up the word inflection points. I think that's probably the way that it fits what I've observed. Mm -hmm. So it's essentially a point in the company's life where the fundamentals of the business are radically different, are going to be radically different to the past. Uh, And I say fundamentals is a really important point. Mm -hmm. It's not technical analysis or anything else. Um, But I think those points, any time that I'm investing actively, I'm trying to find mispricings in the market, which means someone else has done something wrong or misunderstood something. And that could be emotional. It could be they have bad process. could be they're not able to analyze this thing. And I think these um, points where the future is going to be very different give us that opportunity um, because you can't just look at the past financials and say, you know, extrapolate forward because there's a big step up. Um, so it could be a lot of different things. I mentioned in that article the example of a corporate turnaround. Mm. Um, obviously, someone had written about it at uni and whatever else. So that's kind of my first foray into this is coming from a value investor background. So instead of most value investors see a company that's kind of in trouble and see the, that it's, they think it's undervalued and buy. And I think for me, there's a better opportunity to wait until the company's actually started turning. So a lot of people say this is a turnaround in six months. It's going to be great. And I like to just look for opportunities to see evidence of that happening. It comes back to forecasting. If you Forecasting is very good, and I think you should try to do it, but it's even better if you can just observe the world as it currently is rather than trying to predict how it's going to be. So trying to find ways to observe that a change has already happened so it's tipped past that inflection point, that point where the future is very different um, to the recent past, and then that can be a great time to invest. And it still comes back, you have to do evaluation, but it tends to be an opportunity. It's like a heuristic of a chance where a really good business can be available for a much, um, yeah, much cheaper price than you think it's worth because the market hasn't. Market kind of tends to extrapolate linearly. Mm. Um, just to step back again, I think it goes back to our brains. So we think about why is there this bias? I think it goes back to millions of years of evolution. We're not designed to think exponentially as much as we try to. Um, back on the African savanna plains, you know, if we saw mm. a lion coming at us, it wasn't going to exponentially go this way or that. It was going to run in a line. And I think that our brains don't think that well about these things. So it means that when we see a, a curve of recent past, we tend to just extrapolate that out. And companies that have these inflection points, the curve accelerates. And that's mm. what we're trying to find. I think one thing is that some investors, you know, there's so, so much here to unpack. For example, we could say that, you know, this is the kind of the distinction between first level thinking and second level thinking in the sense of not necessarily what you see in front of you, but what could happen. Mm-hmm. But one thing with turnarounds and Warren Buffett's quote, you know, turnarounds seldom turn. Yeah. But one thing about them is we see or we perceive that there's a significant discount to intrinsic value. And by waiting for the fundamentals to confirm what we believe, do we miss out on some of the upside opportunity? Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that a fair criticism or would you say that's okay? I'd say it's very fair and I tried to call that out like that's part of the, part of the point of the strategy. I'd say though it's not waiting until the financials the company's reporting if you can because there's ways to identify basically by doing that deeper research that the turns already happen before it's very obvious in the financials. If you have to wait six months to a year then you're probably too late. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of likened it to a party and you know you could show up um, five minutes early or ten minutes early for the party and you're kind of making an awkward chit chat with a host who wonder why you're there or you can show up sort of 15 minutes late and you do miss a little bit but maybe the party's in full swing and people have had a couple of drinks 
So we're trying to show up then. Turnarounds isn't a big part of what we do either. It'd be probably the um, least by far of what we're looking for of the different types of inflection points that I think there are. Um, but it's, yeah, I think that's a fair trade-off and I think people should recognize that you do give up some of the potential upside, but I think it's a lower risk way of investing in these higher growth opportunities is waiting until there's traction. So another good example is just an IPO. A lot of companies list and some of them have no revenue, which is like astounding to me mm-hmm. that this is possible. But, and so people will invest and say, oh, it's speculative, but it could be huge. And it's like, yeah, but if you just wait until they actually have customers and some kind of process, you'll miss out some of the upside, but you miss out on so many um, disasters as well. So that's what we're trying to strip out. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that you touched on earlier, kind of brushed over, was this idea of what we know is mosaic theory. So we'll never have inside information, mm. but we can build a picture of what the company is doing from the information we have publicly available. Yeah. And you said you kind of have to get creative. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's any uh, examples that you can draw on where you've used a really novel approach. So maybe you've, you know, you've gone to a review website, you've got an app store downloads, little things like that that people don't really think of yeah. when they're just looking at analyzing an annual report, mm-hmm. how you can piece that picture together and find those inflection points. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Um, there is a lot of publicly available information mm. that just can be viewed in a different light. Uh, so yeah, a few examples. Pushpay would probably be a good example when we're first investing in that. Um, they have they provide a, a, an app for churches to make mm-hmm. donations, as you know very well. Uh, and there was a time where you could go to the app store and every church had their own app, basically by, powered by Pushpay. Mm-hmm. And so I could go there and just basically scroll through each page and see that there were you know 4,220 apps this month and then next month there's 4,280 and then they might have a big jump. So you could track that business in live real time basically on a very easily accessible piece of public information. Um, another piece, and so I guess after CFA I'd started studying programming in my spare time is like mm. another skill. So I think there's a lot you can do with kind of scraping the web and publicly available data. Um, and so I'm trying to build some stuff with that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, another another one was uh, A2 milk and infant formula, just going to the supermarkets, checking first, are they in stock or out of stock, and just doing that in different points over time and tracking it. Another was looking at the um, expiry dates on the, on the tins, and then right. you could determine um, essentially when they were produced and how quickly they're turning over stock, and if they're turning over very quickly, um, you know, that could be a good sign that they've got good momentum. I think the more you can build those things, it just adds, it adds conviction. So mm. when we're trying to hold these companies that have these potential to be large returns, a lot of them don't work out as well. So we need to know when to sell. And the share market in the meantime throws all this stuff at you. It gets very freaked out. Um, and so you need to know, have a good handle on your thesis, a good bit of conviction. And I think if you can find an alternative metric it's publicly available to track about a business in between reporting periods. It can give you that confidence to hold when the shares sell off 20, 30% for no reason, or it could give you the idea to buy more if you think it's a really attractive point. So mm. yeah, those are a couple of examples. Um, any, any, anything we can find that's out there, I guess that's public, we try to track. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I heard, uh, or I learned about a really good analogy for this, which is imagine you have a coloring the dots. So you, you know, you follow, your color one is blue, and then you go to this number, you color again, and it creates a picture, right, mm-hmm. as, you, as you draw. And effectively, investing research is the idea of connecting the dots quicker and realizing what the picture is. 
yeah. before anyone else. And these little things enable you to move through those dots quicker and then, mm. aha, that's what it is. And you can get to that quicker. And if other people misinterpret what the picture is, yeah. you can act with conviction and buy more potentially. I think that's spot on. It's actually why I think small investment teams can beat big investment teams um, because you basically, um, one of the wonders of the human brain, why it's better than any algorithms at the moment is it um, can integrate information that's completely disparate in a way that no other system we have can. So you might have a system that's very good at recognizing you know, a cat's face or something, but it can't understand language, it can't understand whatever else. But we can do that. And so the more heads that you have that information in, the harder it, the more like communication that needs to happen to transfer that. Mm. Um, so if you can consolidate that, like Warren, right? It was just him, Warren and Charlie, um, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. The, I think there's an advantage that can be had, provided that you're turning over a lot of rocks and filling your brain with enough stuff that um, you can kind of spot those things that seem disconnected. Um, A2 Milk's another great example where it was a, a publicly released bit of information in the newspaper around pharmacy scan data, um, which showed it like going, you know, rocketing basically. Bellamy's was still well ahead at that stage, but the turning point was extremely rapid. And it coupled with other information, like it only worked because I understood Bellamy's and other stuff, but um, those are the points where mm. that was in the newspaper. Like, how much more public can you get than that? Yeah. So, I still think there's stuff out there. I think that's such a great analogy of how to think about it. It's something that wouldn't make sense to anyone else, but complete with everything else it does. I'm going to talk about it now because you've touched on it and this idea with, I guess, thinking more efficiently and mm -hmm. compounding knowledge. Yeah. Uh, you put out a tweet quite a while ago. Again, I'll link to it. And you talked about this timeless process that I never even really thought about, which is something called myelination. Mm -hmm. And we, we talked off air about this. Yeah. But perhaps you can explain that process um, and why it's important to you, and I kind of I maybe should backtrack with this a little bit and just say that an underpinning theme throughout this entire series has been um, successful investors are curious, mm. they life, they're lifelong learners. And I guess the pursuit of that is, is sometimes harder than it seems, yeah. but you've, um, you've brought this idea to my attention. I think it's well worth sharing. Yeah, absolutely. Curiosity is, it should be a big driver and that motivates you to learn all these different things. So. Yeah, my alienation, I guess I was first exposed to it from a book called The Talent Code, uh, which, um, which I think the pitch, the byline is greatness isn't born, it's made, here's how. And the idea was there's been a lot of studies around the way that a brain forms and you get these different um, these neural nets, these connections, these synapses. And those um, start to be pruned when you're quite young. So when you're very young, you're incredibly fluent, you can learn languages easily, etc. And then they start falling away to the point where by the time you're 18, they're largely set, and not entirely, but it's very hard to make new connections. But there's this other process called myelination, which means that a particular neural pathway might be, you might not change the like networks, like the roads or what have you, but you can myelinate, which is essentially insulation that wraps around that pathway and can turn it from like dial-up broadband to fiber internet speed. Mm. So even though your pathway in your brain, you know, it would be ideal if you'd done it when you were six years old and you have this kind, you can have this other path that's like 10 times faster. And so that process um, lasts well into adulthood and you know even when you're 50 you're still making myelin and that um, can allow you to learn new things in a, in a way that I don't think have been appreciated so the brain's a lot more kind of plastic than we've appreciated before um, and that's yeah how I think about skill there's a certain type of practice you have to do for that it doesn't just come automatically from experience that you have to really force yourself to learn and put yourself kind of on the edge of your knowledge and it's not comfortable to do that it's very hard to sustain but uh, it kind of flows through to this idea of 10,000 hours, etc. It's not 10,000 hours of just 
fun and playing whatever it's 10,000 hours of trying to push yourself in that learning mm. um, and I think it's I don't know I think it's just kind of inspiring like we it's you know you get a lot of people don't get into investing when they're six years old right so right. Um, but you can become um, very good at it and we have a, develop a lot of skill you know well into your 20s 30s 40s mm. um, and I think it's yeah I think it's just something that people should remember um, yeah, it's a very interesting thing instead of just going A to B mm. you know that's what we can forge when we're young maybe we can go A to somewhere in between and then yeah. to B but that we can make that pathway quicker than might otherwise be the case um, I guess for you now because you've, you've thought a lot about this how do you go about making that thought process more efficient? And mm. uh, what day to day is there anything you do that people can take away from this podcast and think maybe I can do that too? It's a great question. It's something we're trying to think about a lot and how we design things. I think the investment industry is really weird in that it's a intense skill that people practice at a high level, or that people do at a high level but never practice. So everyone just invests. No one practices investing. Like mm. if you're in, if you're a pro athlete in basketball, you wouldn't just go out and play once a week, right? And be mm. like, yeah, I'm pro. I go really hard when I play. You you practice that shot like ten thousand times, right? Mm. Um, so it's trying to find ways to break that down that makes sense for investing. And there's other challenges with investing where the feedback loops a lot longer. So it's not like I can just go practice analyze a company and then I know immediately. Um, so we're trying to build some ways to do that. One is. Um, just doing things that are kind of on the edge of understanding, so building that network. I think when we do that, go through the 2,000 companies, we try to do it there. So um, for companies that we're interested in, I've tried to do like um, a probabilistic forecast. What do I think the probability is that it'll be in the top half of performing companies or bottom? Yeah. And it's just a way of going back to super forecasting and you know, tracking your skill and tracking your forecasting ability. So just trying to force those little things into our process. Um, I think another, I've had this idea for a tool which is kind of cumbersome to build, but being able to go back and analyze, take data from five, 10 years ago and strip out any company names so you don't know what you're looking at and try and analyze that data um, and to see which ones you like better. So I've done that kind of ad hoc a couple of times and it can be really interesting and uh, trying to like scale that up into what we do regularly. Um, and yeah, we have other kind of processes of monitoring any price sensitive announcements and stuff like that. So looking at new ideas regularly, I think not just doing your research on one company, like trying to find ways to speed that up, that process, yeah. This is, uh, this brings me to an interesting point because you talked about programming earlier on. Yeah. You talked about, um, you know, we're talking about knowledge accumulation and compounding. Mm -hmm. Two questions, first one's an easy one. Did you actually create an app which tracks people on Twitter to correct them if they spell Warren Buffett incorrectly? <laughs> Yeah. So instead of having one T, it, all, it corrected them to say it's two T. Yeah, T's. correct. Yeah, so that's one of my first um, <laughs> programming projects, you could say. So I think it said uh, it was from Buffett Tron, and they got a reply saying maximum one plate per customer, Warren Buffet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. So um, Twitter shut it down within about 24 hours because <laughs> you can't have that. And then, yeah, anyway, so I decided to pause it there. <laughs> right. But then you, you, you created this other app. So you used to message me and say, have you read this market sensitive update? This yeah. has come through on the ASX about a company that I know you own. And I used to think, geez, I haven't even thought, I didn't even see this announcement until you mentioned it. Yeah. But then you went and created an app that effectively allowed you to read every market sensitive announcement on the yeah. ASX, effectively as they drop, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, so um, that's exactly right. And trying to pull it down and then filter it for, for industries that we're interested in and for only the price sensitive announcements, as you say. 
because um, if you just try and read every announcement, it's well, every price sensitive is already quite a flood of information. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's correct. I think it's like a way to stay very live with the pulse of what's happening and focusing on those announcements. You still see a lot of trash, but you do pick up a bit of signal there um, and you can identify them. Like obviously we're not traders, so it's not, it doesn't need to be that day, but I think um, that can be a great opportunity to find something. You know, you start building your own patterns around um, that's a pretty big upgrade or something like that and start mm. digging into it. So yeah. yeah, I guess that comes back to the compounding. You're just getting information. So if that's an algorithm, you just get the information. That's as simple as it is. And you, the more you learn, the yeah. more you put into your, your machine learning process in, yeah. in your own brain mm. and, and it gets smarter over time. You know, we talked a bit before about these, I guess, these super intellectuals that can read 100 pages, 150 pages an hour, retain most of it, yeah. etc. How much of your time is spent just reading, would you say? Uh, a lot, yeah. So I try to, and, and Buffett's thing, uh, was the, the quotes misattributed 500 pages a day of, you know, A4 mm. text, and he actually said a week. So um, I don't know where I'd fall in that kind of mix between the two, but it's just all, it's mostly all reading, I guess. So um, during the day, I'm reading financials and updates when you try and keep up with all those announcements. There's a lot. Mm. Um, and so that's why I also don't want to sit in the city. I think it's interesting um, managing the portfolio before we just kind of were, were left to our own devices, which was actually very good. Um, mm -hmm. We'd line up company meetings when we want to. Um, launching the fund, I've got a lot of people emailing me, trying to pitch me things, and I just need to like find a way to filter most of those <laughs> out because it is really that. It's like um, to, to invest and have something different, you have to form an independent view of the world, right? So you need to be reading and getting different ideas and, you know, maybe I'll read a book about something and that like sparks a thought um, or I get really into machine learning and AI and then I'm like trying to trawl through everything on the ASX that does that and then who will win and whatever else. So yeah, I think you just don't know where it's going to show up. It's following that curiosity and, mm. and then it just can, can pay off, pay off in unexpected ways later on. Mm. Yeah. So a lot, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, yeah. uh, so one of the things that we talk about a little bit, nowhere near as much as probably what we should on the show is about selling. Mm. And uh, I know you've got, you've done a lot of work on this intellectually, but also within your process. So perhaps you can break down when and why you would sell. I guess there's many different reasons, but yeah. I guess the key, the key <laughs> tenets of that process. It's really amazing because it's just something that doesn't get talked about. All the focus is on buying, right? Like when mm. you're at an event, someone asks, what's the tip to, for me to buy? Um, all the pitches, what we bought this time, etc. But selling is, you know, half the game at least. Um, and position size management is arguably bigger and more important than owning particular stocks if you have them in certain weightings. So selling to us, um, we have that deep research to have this idea of this thesis that we want to, why we want to own the stock. And then we want to sell quickly when a thesis is broken. That's our kind of first rule. So it means constantly monitoring that, deciding before we buy, so writing it down, uh, this is why we're buying, you know, write a couple thousand words on it, why we're buying the company. And in there identifying, if this happens, we'll sell. If this happens, we'll sell. This would cause us concern. And if this happens, we're maybe not worried about it, something like that. And then tracking that and sticking to it because it's very easy, you know, a year down the track, something goes a bit wrong and you think, oh, you know, I still kind of yeah. done a lot of work on this company and they're saying it'll be okay and whatever else. So. It's, it's not easy, like doing that means separating the noise of the market. It also means um, having an idea yeah, of your thesis versus whatever the new thing that management's pitching. 
um, yeah, and just being willing to sell quickly when a thesis is broken. And I, I think another kind of rule of thumb that I used was um, sell if you would not be buying today. So anytime you open your portfolio, you have a certain weighting of positions that should be the optimal for what you think you own, like you should own. If you think if you own 5% of Ultium or wherever it is, you should want to have that. You shouldn't, mm. th- you know, if you were starting today from scratch, you should want to put that much in. There's some trading and friction and, and tax and stuff. We try to generally not think about that too much. And obviously we're not hyper tuning it either. We're not saying, you know, tiny fractions every day. But I think that people get way too hung up on what they've owned it for and, you know, it's up a lot, so I don't want to sell and mm. all that stuff, which just isn't rational. Like you can't, you can't defend that, right? If you actually think about it and say, um, try and logically explain why you're doing that, it doesn't make sense. So I just try and, any, that's a good rule of thumb of mm. things to avoid. Yeah, so often people take their signals from price. Yeah. Is, yeah. Um, that's the best way of summing it up, I think, taking signals from price instead taking them from fundamentals. So. Mm. Yeah. But I think you, you talked there about almost you're, you're inverting the logic. So you're saying in advance, why would I sell when you write your thesis down? You list the reasons why you would sell. So mm. if they happen, then you know that that was a signal for you to sell, right? Yeah. And that can be as simple as it is. Someone could take away from this episode is listen to yourself yeah. in advance, effectively. Yeah. yeah. And writing is very, it's very easy to underrate how important writing is because mm-hmm you think you know something and then you try and write a thousand words on it and it's like, wow, I don't understand this at all, you know? Um, so I think I'd also advise if people are really into it and getting kind of intermediate advanced, try just writing, maybe even just a blog, share it with your yep. friends and family. It doesn't have to be huge, but knowing that someone else will read it kind of lifts you your writing to another level as well, like, because they'll pick holes in it or they'll identify something that you said that's wrong. So that's something we're trying to build into our process. Um, a lot of it will be internal because obviously as a fund we won't be sharing everything about our everything but we'd like to share a lot of it with our clients to the extent possible mm-hmm. um, but yeah when a company reports write a thousand words on what you think about it not just ticking a few bullet points mm-hmm. um, that adds a bit of overhead at the time for sure but it means you've thought through enough logically that you can read it and say this makes sense and you expose a lot of holes that way. You do. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say that's one of the great things is when you write it down, if you then sleep on it and you come back to it yeah. the next day, you think, what did I just write? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't yeah, make any yeah, sense. Yeah. And you, you, you can't, you're, you're fact checking your own, your own work. And then if you put it publicly again, yeah. um, it's a whole different kettle of fish and, and I guess lift the standards again. Yeah. 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 So one more thing that I really want to talk to you about is this idea, automation, artificial intelligence. Yeah. As I mentioned, it, I know it's a big, um, I guess intellectual um, mountain that you want to climb. Yeah. And I guess there's two prongs to this. How does this factor into your process? How do you does this does this impact your process in any way? And the other side is, is there an opportunity for you here, in investing? In yeah. Mind? So um, I think AI will be one of the biggest changes to humanity. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, I don't, it's probably at the top of like the hype cycle at the moment. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to think that's just going to go straight It'll probably have a crash and then come back. But when it comes back, I think it's just going to, um, it's going to be pretty dramatic. So mm-hmm. we are, as I said, forecasting machines, I think we are prediction machines, and machine learning and AI is just prediction um, at scale. And I think it'll touch everything around us There's another book I really like called the third wave around bringing the internet they say the first wave was just building the internet the second wave was like layers and applications like Facebook 
and the third wave is bringing it into the real world so touching everything around right. us Internet of Things, but just, it's hard to describe, like augmented reality, for instance, is effectively AI and machine learning. So this is looking out in the world and it projects a map onto the world that's different for you or different for I. That's a radical change of what mm. reality is, right? Like you and I could have literally different realities that we're both experiencing. And I think that will happen. Like that's, there's already companies like um, Magic Leap and HoloLens that are doing it. Um, they just need to keep miniaturizing it. It's already starting. Um, and so and the, just a lot of these things, it's going to be a very big change. So any big change I'm super interested in, um, CRISPR and DNA editing is another one that I'm super interested in. It's even earlier. But so trying to understand them first, uh, then I, and trying to like understand them when they're still early, because it takes a couple of years for me to get up to speed enough to talk with any authority, not that I'm an authority in any means, but to know the right questions to ask, for instance, when I... Every company on the ASX right now wants to say it's an AI company and then I can ask better questions because I've tried to research it than, um, you know, than other people hopefully and uh, sometimes the CEOs don't know what they're talking about. I can find that out pretty quickly. So that's, um, that's huge. I think it's, it's going to be as big um, I think as like the internet or something like that. So it's trying to find how the business models will be different as well. Uh, it's kind of like a, I think it'll be like a, a flywheel effect around learning loops for the data who can get good quality data mm. and speed up that interaction. Um, I hope that it's, I think it might be similar to SaaS in some ways that you could have it be um, sold as a service, the AI prediction, rather than selling the AI, if that makes sense. So instead of selling AI to predict crop yields or to fertilize, you might have selling the service per acre of a service which uses AI to deliver that and so the customer doesn't need to know it's AI but um, so that's what I'm look, looking to a lot of what we do is um, trying to find big companies when they're still small and early so we look a lot at VC venture capital work and right. how they think about companies analyze them um, so I'm trying to bring that in uh, and yeah to your point around using it for investing it's actually super hard. So I've gone through, I've done some tutorials and whatever else around investing, build a neural net to predict, you know, um, try to analyze a letter or something and see which one it is based on handwriting. Stuff like that is easy because you've got a direct mapping between the signal and the result, between the, um, the data and the accurate result you want. And in investing, there's this beautiful thing in the middle which mixes it all up, which is sentiment and prices. And so you could have some fundamental, but if you're trying to predict price, it's very hard. I think the people like Patrick O'Shaughnessy that are doing interesting things around it is not trying to predict share market stuff, but just trying to predict other fundamentals. So you find some right. and predict those. But it's still super early days. It's definitely not a big part of what we do now. It's something that I'm trying to continue exploring. Um, yeah, and hopefully, hopefully use some of that stuff in future. But at the moment, it's more understanding enough about it so that when someone says that they're an AI company, I get to ask, you know, how do you train your data sets? Is it unsupervised or supervised learning? How are you annotating that? Are you, and then they, if they don't know any of that, maybe they're not really an AI company. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so that kind of stuff. How about if someone was to say to you that what you do as a, as a stock picker, quote unquote, mm. could be automated? Mm. What would be your defense to that? Um, I'm not really, I don't try to defend too much, to be honest. Like, yeah. I'm kind of open to it if it can happen. So I'd want to be one of the guys trying to figure in that out. Um, mm. So I think that is one area that I'd want to explore is I have a certain set of companies that I like and can I build something that helps to identify other companies that matches what I like, if that mm. makes sense. So then it's 
still missing out a lot of stuff, but it might be able to be used as like an idea gen tool, kind of like a screen, but instead it's um, a neural network trained on companies that I happen to have liked in the past. So that could be one way of doing it. But I think bigger than that, um, it's the cha- what I felt about my process, because when you get into this stuff, it can get a bit spooky, right? You think mm. about how many jobs could be eliminated, etc. I think it's trying to think about what things won't be easy for a computer to do or a machine learning algorithm to do and then trying to build a lot of the moat around those or trying to focus on those. So I mentioned integration before. I think that's still something really big. So being curious and understanding diverse topics and how they fit together is one of the harder thing, harder problems mm. in AI. Um, and so trying to build stuff around that and then moving away from quantitative data. So you could say... Mm maybe what I'm doing and my strategy is like a retreat from what the machines have started taking over. But I think part of the reason a lot of traditional value investing doesn't work as well is because it's really easy to do mechanically. If something can be done mechanically, it probably should be. Like it's more efficient for the world. Mm. Um, It doesn't, don't need to pay someone to see that PF5 is great. Um, And there's different pockets. Small companies are still going to be harder for that to happen and whatever else. But generally... I think if you're just relying on past financial publicly available data, it's just going to keep getting harder. And so that layers you're talking about qualitative, meeting with management, trying to build a skill set around meeting with management, trying to build a skill set around understanding sales and marketing processes, um, around culture. These are things that I've tried to develop over the last few years. And um, yeah, I guess the last point is new areas are always going to be pretty hard for AI unless they're very similar to old areas. So... AI might struggle to invest in you know, a new DNA company if that's a t- entirely different business model, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. They won't have any data to train on. All of this stuff relies on using lots of past data to understand. Um, and so I think that is an area we keep focusing on new industries and getting good at understanding them early, um, mm. that we should be able to stay ahead of the curve. But we'll see. I'm, I'm open to it. I don't want to be too defensive. I think you can get uh, locked down into a mode of thinking if you try sure. to defend too much. Yeah. yeah. Okay, as we come to the back end of the conversation, Maven Funds Management, you have a website, you're on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, how should people be getting in contact with you and following along with what you and the, the team do? Yeah, so um, mavenfunds.com.au is a website where people can register their interest if they're interested there. Um, I also write on mattjoss.com. Um, both of those sites have a contact form. Um, I'm very interested in people reaching out. Mm. Uh, also, if there's younger people interested in investing, as I said, if, you're, if you have a vision, once you're successful, what you want to do with it and, and help other people, um, I'm very game to spend, I'm happy to give up some time to help people in that um, pursuit. So, yeah, so I think those uh, reaching Great. out on those sites. Yeah, we'll good. put some links in the show notes for sure. Last question, Matt. Uh, if you could go back and tell younger you one thing about money, finance, or investing, what would it be? I think... Um, Kind of, a, kind of two quite related points, but the first is just coming back to that learning and development and how that can play out over a, a lifetime. Um, so small changes that you make can make a big difference. Um, I think it was, I think I learned a lot, you know, um, since I was 18, I hope I'll learn a lot more over the next 10, 20 years. Um, so I think that coming back that you can do that a lot earlier. Like just try and learn a new skill that you think you can't do now. And I guarantee if you spend like 40, 50 hours on it, you'll be better than 60, 80% of people, you know, you can learn that. Um, I think kind of somewhat related is that long-term view. I guess when I started out in the industry, I had, uh, there's a lot of problems that I still see in the industry, but if you play that long-term game with long-term people, that's what I try to do. I think you can, 
find the good people in the industry and it starts to you don't feel it at first i guess like there's times in early business adventures where i got kind of ripped off by someone i thought you know is it you know you feel that you should be good <laughs> but uh, maybe bad people actually have an advantage but i think over time you start to build this network of people that you can trust and then i only do you know business and work with people that i trust and it just becomes really rewarding like you have it just i don't know it's hard to describe but it's something i notice later that if you just kind of lean into that and have faith you do the right thing treat people well um yeah you can have amazing things like as i said that that person donating to to charity as a result of something that we had um, done Mm. so yeah i'd say play the long game and uh although it can be tempting and hard when you're trying to do that when you're young i think it really does pay off wonderful advice matt Thanks for joining me on the show. No worries. Thanks very much. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. To access more free interviews, get investment research and ideas, follow the link in your podcast player to one of our websites. And if you're on Twitter or Instagram, say hello. You'll find me with the handle at Owen Rask. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.